0: Father, as we uh, approach your word, would you open our hearts and our minds and our ears um, and our lives to what you would have to, to say to us. i uh, give you thanks for James and his presence here today. Use him by your grace, we pray, all in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. James Grant is uh, a familiar face uh, in these parts these days, and so we are uh, delighted to have him back and to do uh, part two of the the sermon that he began last week. And so, James, we uh, appreciate you very much and look forward to what God would have to say to you. Come forward. And James has reminded me that the children need to be dismissed to Children's Church. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, just... It is a delight to be back with you. Our scripture uh, this week is the same as the one last week, 2 Timothy 3.16, which is in your order of service. We're going to look back into this passage and focus on the second part of the verse. Last week we looked at what we believe, and this week we'll look more closely at conduct. Second Timothy three sixteen. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Pray with me, please. Father, we come before you at this time to ask that you would meet us at this moment as we look at your word. Open our hearts and our minds to the word of your truth so that we might grow in our faith. Lord, as we look at some of the themes that we'll see here, we pray that you will strengthen and encourage us, that even though we may be convicted and moved by what we see, we pray that as we look at it, that your spirit would do a work that would be a work of encouragement. For we ask this in Christ's name, amen. I'm more and more convinced that one of the critical components of growth in the Christian faith is not only growing in your knowledge of God but also growing in your knowledge of yourself. It's something we often don't reflect on and think about. One of my favorite writers in the history of the church is St. Augustine. You may have read at some point in college or school his Confessions. Maybe you've studied it here. His book, The Confessions, is one of the great classics of the Christian faith. And in it, Augustine says, How can you draw close to God when you are far, far off from your own self? And he prayed, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. How can you know God when you don't know yourself? Now, lest you think that's simply something Augustine said, John Calvin, in his institute, started the whole book off, which is considered one of the five greatest theological works in the history of the church, even by people that aren't Presbyterian, Wrote, Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. Two of the greatest minds in the history of the church, Augustine and Calvin, both say, that your spiritual growth as a Christian, the journey of faith that you are on, the life of faith, is a life that moves toward knowing God and knowing yourself. Part of the reason that's true is because God created all of you differently. You all have different inclinations. You look at the world slightly differently. If you're married, you know this, or you try to ignore it sometimes. If you're growing up, you start to realize, why is it that I see this and someone else sees this differently? Part of spiritual maturity, what the Bible calls wisdom, is a growth and an awareness of how God made you and what God's doing in that process. That's partly what we're going to look at this morning from our passage in 2 Timothy. I used the quote from Luther last week that's still in your bulletin at the end of the sermon, where Luther talks about this process, this growth in righteousness. And so we're going to look at 2 Timothy 3.16 and look at the second part. So let me just remind you as we look back at the passage briefly what the first part was last week. So there are four terms. Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for four things. Teaching, the ESV says, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And I mentioned last week that these break down into two categories. The first two, teaching and reproof, involve what you believe. Doctrine. Creed, as we say. The last two, correction and training in righteousness, involve what you do, how you should live, your conduct. It's important to make that note, to make that distinction between the two, because if you look at the two middle terms, reproof and correction, you may just be, well, what's the difference between those two things? Well, the difference is for teaching, it's the positive statements of what you believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. For reproof, it's the negative things whenever we have to deal with false belief, what the history of the church is called heresy at times, when someone denies the Trinity. I don't know how often this has happened to you, but every so often, usually once a year, a Jehovah's Witness will come knocking on my door, and they'll inevitably want to have a conversation. And that conversation always goes straight to the point of how they view Jesus. Is he fully God and fully man? How do they view the spirit? Because they're not Trinitarian. That's one component of this passage. What you believe, what you should believe, and what you should not believe. Then the second side is the way you live. And that's what correction and training in righteousness is. Are addressing. Last week, as we looked at what you should believe and what you shouldn't, I used three examples. I used the example of the sovereignty and providence of God and how that belief should change the way you live. I used the example of justification by faith alone, and I used the example of how you view faith and repentance. As we pick back up and look at the second half of this in terms of what we do, I want to come back to the issue of faith and repentance because faith and repentance are fundamental in terms of how you live as a Christian. That's why the quote from Luther that I ended with last week is so helpful. It's on page three, if you'll look at it for just a moment. When we move to talk about conduct, when we move to, to examine how we should live, we have to remember a quote like Luther's. We have to remember that God has already done something for us, so our actions and behavior are not gaining his favor. Let me say that again. The importance of this, if you start looking at how you live and what you need to repent of and how you need to conduct yourself, is important because when you focus on, when you look at yourself, when you look at your actions, it's not about gaining God's approval. According to the gospel, that's already true. You are accepted. And in order to live properly, you have to live out of that reality. So Luther says, This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. If we all were able to change our perspective on the Christian life with just that term, that would be immensely helpful. It's not about whether you're righteous or not, you're not. It's about the progress. It's about the growth, not health, but healing, not being, but becoming, not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be. That is true of every single one of us. It will not happen this side of heaven, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished but it is going on this is not the end but it is the road all does not yet gleam in glory but all is being purified that vision of the christian life is so fundamental this life is a journey it's not health but it's healing it's the progress that you're making it's the it's the process that is happening So as we look at these particular points, it's important to realize that nothing I say this morning about your sin or nothing that I say about how correction needs to, how, how, how these things need to happen changes your standing before God. That's why I gave the story about justification by faith alone last week you have to start there. Let me give you one example from scripture, okay? Let me give you an example from scripture of how Paul does this. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Just a short example. This is a completely different sermon. This is probably five sermons in one. (laughs) Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 is one of my favorite passages because this is so clear. And I love the first four verses. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a powerful statement. Just let it kind of wash over you for a moment. Paul's not saying you haven't, I'm questioning whether you are in Christ. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, then you are called to seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? Verse 3, for you have died, and your life is hidden with God in Christ. I'm fascinated by all the verses in Paul's epistles where he says, you are dead. Even though you're living and breathing and talking and engaging right now, According to the gospel, you died on the cross with Christ. You have died. And that goes into a whole bunch of stuff he says in Romans about being dead to sin and alive to God. This, theologically, is called the indicative. Yeah, I'm sorry I'm pulling a grammatical term here. Some of you just checked out because you had a horror experience in grammar school or college with a grammar teacher It's called the indicative because it's a statement of fact. It's a statement of reality. Theologically, if you read uh, passages on Paul's epistles, books on Paul's epistles, they'll call it the indicative imperative structure. And what they mean by that is there's an indicative, a statement of fact, and an imperative, a command. You never have a command in Scripture that's not rooted in a statement of fact. Commands do this, are always rooted in a reality that God has placed you somewhere that's accepted. So, for example, in Colossians 3, when you set your mind on things above or what I'm about to show you that Paul says, you have to know and believe you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Think about another example. We're talking about the second part of of 2 Timothy 3.16. And we think about, okay, what are the guidelines and rules in Scripture that we follow for commands? Well, the Ten Commandments automatically comes to mind. God God gave Israel a list of commandments. But right before the first commandment is this statement I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery and bondage. Now live this way. It's a pattern through all of Scripture. And so now notice what Paul does. He sets in place your identity in Christ. And then he says in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, here's the vices. Here's the, here's the side that you need to correct. Uh, if we're staying consistent with our passage in uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16, this is the correction. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now notice he just listed some very sensitive topics. Who really wants to sit through a whole sermon on coveting? But we all do it. And so Paul says, you have these sinful behaviors that need to be corrected, put them to death. And he goes on. In these, verse seven, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after after the image of its creator. Now look what he does in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now notice what happens here in Colossians 3. He sets a statement before you that's true of who you are. You are dead in Christ. Your life is hidden in Christ. What Christ did for you has, has you accepted before God. Because this is true now verse 5 put to death these vices and put on verse 12 these virtues. That's exactly what he's saying in 2 Timothy 3:16 when he says that scripture is given to you for correction and training in righteousness. He just expands it here. Now that you see, I think once you see what he's saying in 2 Timothy 3:16, you'll see it through all of scripture. Now here's how this connects to faith and repentance. I said last week that a proper understanding of faith and repentance means that they are dynamic, that they grow, that there's an element of faith when you're young, if you grow up in the church, where you believe in Jesus and you love Jesus. But then as you grow up, that has to deepen and that faith goes through moments of confusion, Moments, let's use the, exam, the, the, the language of Scripture, moments of death and resurrection. That's what happens to all of our faith. Your faith will die and be resurrected to a new type of faith. That's what the pattern of life is. The same thing's true of repentance. Repentance has depth to it. Let me give you some examples of this. There are certain steps of repentance I mentioned last week that Luther, when he posted his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg to start the Reformation, the issue of repentance was the very first thesis. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life. One of my favorite preachers, obviously he's one of yours because you give a book away to somebody if, he show, if they ask for it, is Tim Keller. And t- Tim has an article titled, All of Life is Repentance where he draws from what Luther says. So let's think about this issue of repentance. The first most basic step of repentance is to confess an action as sin. You have to do that. When you get angry, there has to be a moment at which you go, that's wrong. Some people live their life and never admit some of their sin is wrong. Or they never acknowledge certain actions as sin. And so the very first basic idea is to realize something is wrong. This is a sin and we confess it and we turn to God for help. That's a very basic element of repentance. Where I do something and I'm like, Lord, forgive me, I just lied. Now, have you ever been stuck in the loop of saying what we call white lies where you fudge the truth a little bit, and you say that someone asks you a question, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I've I've done that. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I didn't really do it. Maybe kind of. Did I just lie? Do you have that problem? Maybe I'm the only one that tells those little lies. And then it happens again. And you go, God... Please forgive me. I keep doing this. I'll confess, I would tend to fudge the truth when we were traveling, especially around holidays when we lived 30 minutes away from my family. We'd be driving. We lived over towards Chattanooga. We'd be driving to Chattanooga. My mom would call. She goes, Hey, are you almost here? I said, Well, I'm near the mall, I'm not far. And my wife would look at me like, we're nowhere near the mall. And I get off the phone, and she goes, what, why did you tell her we're near the mall? I said, well, the mall's straight over that way on the interstate, although we're on this country road. And I didn't have the heart to tell her that we left late, and I just we're right here by it. And I was justified in my mind, like I wasn't admitting that I had just stretched the truth. And she looks at me like, are you really having this conversation with me? And so that kind of pattern happens over and over in your life, which is why I started out with the quote, you have to know yourself. Why do I do that? Why do I stretch the truth? Is it because I want someone to not be disappointed in me? Is it because I want them to like me? Is it because I don't want to get in trouble? What are the things happening inside of me that do this? The first step is to go, I can't keep doing that. The second step after that initial confession and turning from it where you're like, oh, i got to stop it, is to recognize this ongoing struggle is happening and what's at the root of it. What is at the root of, to use Hebrews 12, the constantly besetting sin that you face? Have you ever thought about that? What is at the root of the sin? Analyzing that and reflecting on that brings you to a different level of repentance. You have to consider what the root issue is. Why do I do this thing that I keep doing? What is taking place inside me that causes this? These are vices. And these vices, when Paul talks in Galatians about desire... He's using a word that's negatively describing a desire that's gone over the top, a desire that's out of control, a desire that's messed up, a desire that is more than it should be for something. That is the type of habitual sin you have in your life, a besetting sin. It's like a rut. When I was in high school, my dad had a big four-wheel drive truck, I know this is going to tell stories about me because I'm just telling this. I should not be telling this. We lived not in the city. It was enough out to where if you had a big truck with big tires on it, you went mudding. And so we would do that. The bigger the truck, the bigger rut you made. And it was always exciting when your truck could get through the rut and the next truck got stuck on it and you had to pull that truck off. That's like sin. You have sins in your life that have created ruts, and you keep falling into the rut. I do too. I've told you two stories about myself already where I've done that. But that's the way all of your life is. And, and looking at yourself and asking the question, why do I keep falling in that rut, is part of the correction Paul's talking about in 2 Timothy 3.16. So you need some guides on why is it that this keeps happening. Listen to what James says in chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? The most obvious thing that you can look out at at life is this person's fighting with this other person. And you could say, oh, I'm sorry, we shouldn't have fought. But ask the question, as James does in James chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He uses the word passion. That word passion is what the history of the church is tied into with vices. The history of the church has a particular tradition known as the virtue tradition that analyzes your root sins. And those sins are known as the seven deadly sins. What is it not this that your passions are at war within you? Listen to verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Where do these quarrels and fights come from? Yes, they're sins, but they have a desire, a root desire that causes this. And those are the deeper issues that are happening in your heart. And that's why repentance is a lifelong process because the goal of your Christian life and maturity in the faith is to grow in wisdom. And wisdom is that very broad and ambiguous place where you're like Job, Where you're sitting in the midst of suffering and trials, and some people are saying, This is because you sinned, and some people are saying, Well, if you've just done this differently, and you're thinking, I don't know why this is happening, but I trust you, Lord, to show me what you're intending to show me. The wisdom books in Scripture are there because they're pointing us to, they're instructing us on how to live in all the gray areas where Scripture doesn't make a specific statement. And that's what Christian maturity is, which is why you have to look at yourself and know God. Know yourself and know God. I think it's very important to do that. Let me me just highlight a few areas here. There are several ways we could look at this. Sometimes you can look at this area in terms of your heart through the lens of idolatry. Tim Keller has a phenomenal book on idolatry where he examines what your idols are. And in the midst of it, he gives some very helpful pointers. Um, One of which is, where are your disappointments and hurts? What's happening when that takes place? Another way to do this is to look at the seven deadly sins. When I went to uh, Italy with uh, um, a group of students from Westminster, we went to a lot of the art museums. And when you go to those museums in Florence and Rome, you see all this medieval art, beautiful art. One of the fascinating sections of one of the museums was a group of paintings on the seven deadly sins. And one such painting depicted a tree with pride as the root Trunk of the, tr- the root and trunk of the tree, and off the tree were these big branches of greed and gluttony and lust and anger and sloth and envy, and then hanging off the branches were other things that looked like fruit that described the actual actions you commit, and the point of the painting was that even though there may be this sin of resentment that you have towards somebody... That's not the root thing. There's something else going on inside your heart that causes that. For me, whenever resentment pops up and I feel like I'm not being treated fairly, inevitably it has to do with some kind of anger that's welled up in my heart. And then when I look at the anger, I have to ask the question, now why am I angry here? Am I angry because this is something that's not just? Or am I angry because I felt like I was just mistreated? Somebody's not listening to me. My way is better than their way, and so they should have listened to me. Those are important questions to ask when you look at the dynamics of your sin. Let's take one example. Let's take the example of greed. The seven, one of the seven deadly sins is Greed. It's the excessive acquisition and excessive retaining of money or possessions. Greed is the excessive love or desire for money or any possession that money can buy. There are two dynamics to greed, if that is one of the things that you struggle with. One is the refusal to give away. The other is the desire to accumulate. Both of those take shape if one of your root sins is greed, In order to confront that, you have to take intentional steps of giving. I remember sitting in Jackson, Mississippi, talking to a friend who was in the business world but was also involved at RTS Jackson. And he told me a story. I was... This was over 10 years ago. And he was teaching me a very important lesson I've never forgotten. He said, I've been out on business meals to a meal with people from RTS or other places. And because I'm in the business world, they expect me to pick up the check. And at the very end of the meal, there'll be a hesitation on their part when they're the ones asking me out to donate. And he said that's not the way I think the ministry should be approached. He said, I'm telling you this because I don't want you to sit across from the table, somebody, and hesitate to grab the check because you feel entitled and think they should pick it up because you're in the ministry. It's one of the most valuable practical lessons I ever got. Those are the kind of lessons that Paul is driving at when he talks about passions and root desires. Take, for example, um, sloth. Sloth is another example of one of the deadly sins. Sloth is often falsely characterized as a lazy bum, but that's not exactly what the term meant. It's a lack of care. Sloth is the avoidance of certain things that are appropriate. Diligence is its opposite when you are diligent about a task, a responsibility, dedication to hard work. But sloth breaks down and it's amazing to me uh, that I've read some of these medieval handbooks on sin and they break these sins down this way. And they say, okay, if you struggle with sloth that you avoid certain things, then the virtue you need to attach to this is diligence. But you have to be on guard against two things, apathy and avoidance. Those are the two dynamics that sloth ties itself to. Apathy is where we cleverly build walls between us and the demands of others on our life. We see the needs of someone. We see the needs of our wife, our husband, our children, our neighbor, but we put up a wall. That is actually sloth. You see the need that needs to be addressed, but you're apathetic about it. Or avoidance. You avoid activities and people that will bring you face-to-face with what God's calling you to do. We all have defense mechanisms like that. We all live that way. One last example. Envy. Envy is something that we all struggle with. the desire for someone else's abilities, traits, status, situation. Envy is typically focused on who we are. We don't have this. And that's the key that distinguishes envy from other similar sins. Envy will target internal qualities in another person, qualities that give that person worth, honor, standing, status, and our own personal lack of that. Now, I tell you all this, not to make this so terribly depressing that you're like, I hope he never comes back and preaches again. But to highlight something very important. When 2 Timothy 3.16 talks, when, when Paul talks the way he does in 2 Timothy 3.16... Correction is dealing with those kind of passions. If you want to get to the root issue of growth in the Christian life and transformation, correction is dealing with those kind of things. What's happening in your heart? Why is it that you are acting the way you do? Not your actions, but what's in your motives. And then training in righteousness is replacing those bad motives those vices, with a positive action. It is the hinge of faith and repentance. So if I were to put it this way, based on what Paul says in Colossians 3, you understand, in spite of everything I've just said, and I only—I was really kind, I didn't deal with all seven, just a couple. But in the midst of analyzing yourself, don't, don't be afraid to do it. Because you are hid with Christ in God. You're already accepted. You're already connected. You already are righteous because of justification by faith alone. So, according to Paul, put to death what's earthly in you. Repent of those things. And by repent, I don't mean simply, oh, that's wrong. I'm sorry I did it. I'm sorry I did it. I'm sorry I did it. Oh, I did it again. I'm so sorry. Dig a little bit beneath the surface and figure out what the patterns are that's causing this, and repent. But don't just repent. And this was one of the missing ingredients that I didn't have early on whenever I told the story last week about the preacher telling me to repent. He never replaced the negative behavior with a positive virtue. It's so important. There are sins that are pleasurable. Hebrews 11 says, Moses turned away from the pleasure of sin for a season because he looked off to the reward that God promised. So I'll give you a real practical example. There are things that will happen in your life where you get angry and think that you have to pay somebody back. It happened to all of us. And you're gonna take vengeance on that person. But the Bible says don't take vengeance. Don't do it. So what is the element there if you see that you're tempted with that, that you need to put in front of you. According to the book of Romans, Paul says, Don't take vengeance in your own hands. Don't do it yourself, but leave room, he says, for the wrath of God. Because God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. You're not in the business of being the judge, it's not what you're called to do. God is. And so whenever we have those situations that we face, if you take that into your own hands, you're not living by faith. To live by faith at that moment when you're tempted to pay somebody back, to live by faith means to trust that God knows what he's doing and he'll take care of it. It's a completely different way to live. That's replacing the negative attitude with a positive focus on faith in God's promise. The same, that's why the virtues and vices go together. Whenever you're tempted towards fear, when you're, when you're afraid of what's happening, then courage is the thing that replaces it. Whenever you are tempted with lust, love is the virtue that replaces it. You have to replace those things. And the Apostle Paul says... That as you do this, here's what will happen. If If you look back in Colossians 3, after he says, put on then these things, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And as this happens, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts know that you are an accepted child of God, that God loves you. If you trust him, God loves you, and he will not let you go. And so as you repent and turn towards faith in the direction that he has you going, rest assured that your life is hidden with Christ in God. And the promise is when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's good news. That's why the gospel is the bookends anytime you're dealing with the growth and correction and training in righteousness that you have to in the course of your life. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude this morning, We would ask that you would give us the grace that we need to receive the forgiveness that you grant to us in the course of our life. Lord, we are so prone to wander away from your love and your mercy. We are so prone to leave you. And we are tempted with all of these passions and these desires that we have. And whenever we commit those sins, we feel guilty and unworthy. And we would pray that in moments like that, you would remind us that our life is not righteousness, but it's growth in righteousness. It's not health right now, but it's in the process of healing, that we are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. May that be the prayer and desire of all of our hearts. And we pray that your spirit would give us the comfort that we need through the power of the gospel this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.